You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. This morning, we are continuing our look at some scriptures related to David and and David's life and some of the things that that God's Word helps us to to understand as we look at it. And we're going this morning to be looking at the period of time when David actually becomes king. Now, he had been told he was going to be king, and he was anointed for that role, but we're going to see that happen and uh, we're going to watch that process take place, and it's recorded in, in a couple different spots in 2 Samuel. The first part of it is in 2 Samuel 2, so we'll begin in 2 Samuel 2, and then in a little while we're going to jump over to chapter 5. But overall, as we're looking at this, and as we're thinking about this process that David uh, went through and the things that the Lord was teaching him and the things that the Lord was, was certainly doing in his life, we're going to talk about this idea of becoming great, because David is called great here. So we're going to think about that concept, this idea of becoming great, but not in your own eyes. Becoming great, but not in your own eyes. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. This is what it says, starting with verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 7. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together this morning. And we're just grateful for the understanding that you allow us to have regarding the words that you've communicated so many years ago. We're grateful that your spirit helps us make sense of what we're reading. And your spirit, he helps us apply these truths to our day-to-day lives. And so, Lord, it's very obvious that, that in his generation, you made David great. Lord, you desire to do similar things in and through us, and yet your desire is that we not adopt a mindset where we think too highly of ourselves as you do so. So, Lord, we pray that we would understand these concepts as we watch what you have done in the life of David, and we pray, Lord, that we would grow in our walk with you, with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day I had the awkward experience of having to listen to someone praise himself. Now, I guess I shouldn't totally say I had to 
listen to him do it because it was, I was technically listening to an audio book and I could have turned the audio book off, right? I could have turned it off. Uh, but just the same, it was a little awkward to hear the author as he was reading his own text praising himself. He was singing his own praises. The book literally began with five straight minutes of the author listing everything he had ever done, everything he had ever succeeded at, and every credential he had ever earned. And uh, to a degree, what I understood that he was trying to do was maybe establish some credibility before elaborating on his subject. So I think he wanted people to understand that he actually had the authority to talk about the things that he was talking about in the book. But just the same, I, I wouldn't have minded if maybe he shortened the self-praise, maybe by half, you know, maybe out of the five minutes if he just took five seconds or maybe zero seconds. And I, and I guess to some degree, and you've probably noticed this in your own life, but I guess to some degree, we're all tempted to praise ourselves. Wouldn't you say, like, to some degree, we're all tempted to do that? Uh, I've certainly done so, and I suspect that I'm not alone in making that mistake. But again, hearing that author praise himself at length was a, uh, a very healthy reminder to me that extolling our own praises isn't very flattering. It isn't wise. It doesn't really convey the heart of the Lord. And it doesn't really convey what the, the Lord wants to demonstrate through us. And it reminds me of a portion of Scripture from Proverbs 27. When you look at verse 2 there, it says, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. Well, during the days of his service to Israel as a warrior, and now as a king, David certainly could have praised himself. But when you look at the things that he said, the things that he did, thankfully he made a pattern of reserving his praise for the Lord. That was David's pattern. That's what he lived out. He also seemed to, to retain a great deal of respect for others, even when some of those people treated him with contempt, and even when some of those people treated him with disrespect. And I think a very powerful and very insightful example is given to us when we see the, the respectful way that David continued to respond to Saul and Saul's household, even though King Saul was jealous of David and for a long period of time pursued him, tried to kill him, he was fearful of David usurping his authority, he was jealous of the praise that David received from the people uh, in Israel, and, uh, and Saul just really wasn't a David fan, and yet at the same time, you see David continuing to, to respond to Saul and Saul's household, so his children, his family. He did so with respect. Now, as the book of 2 Samuel begins, today we started in chapter 2, but if you actually look back in chapter 1, you'd see a portion of Scripture that reveals to us where David hears of Saul's death. So the book begins with David hearing of Saul's death, and again, if somebody was pursuing you and slandering you and trying to kill you and trying to snuff you out from the face of this earth, how do you think you would respond upon the news of hearing that they had died? I think most people, naturally speaking, and even I could, I could say understandably speaking, would probably, if they weren't celebrating, they'd at least feel relieved. Relieved that they're not being pursued any longer. Relieved that, that uh, the person that was trying to hurt them did not succeed in that task. But when David heard that Saul was now dead, the Scripture reveals that he actually grieved heavily for him. He grieved heavily for him. He even wrote a lament. You know that David wrote so many of the Psalms and, and, and many of these things we sing and we give the Lord praise for. Well, David, you know, he's a poet. The Lord spoke to him and threw him in that way. And at the, at the time that Saul died, David poured out his heart in a lament. And he, he wrote it about Saul. 
He wrote it about Saul's son, Jonathan, who was a very tight friend with David. And then he instructed the people of Judah to learn it and repeat it. So that was his instruction to them. I want you to learn this, and I want you to repeat it. And he basically paints Saul. He basically you know, shares his good qualities. He shares the things that the Lord had done in Saul's life. And, uh, and he just encourages people to lament with this specific lament that actually speaks rather kindly and rather generously towards Saul. But now the time had come for David to assume the throne that was, that was promised to him by the prophet Samuel. And the process began as he, as he takes on the throne here. The process begins in the land of Judah, and then it was eventually completed in all the land of Israel. And what happens here is the Lord instructed David at first... To go to, to, to go to Hebron. And there the scripture told us, and we read this together just a moment ago, that the men of Judah anointed him as their king. So that process began in Hebron, in Judah. The men of Judah, they anoint David as king, and this pro- prophetic uh, description of what the Lord was going to do in David's life and through his life, you see it continuing there. Now, many people, and you probably noticed this, when they assume a role of leadership, they display their insecurities in a very particular way. And maybe you've noticed this. From what I've seen, when new leaders take the helm, whether it be in a corporation, or whether it be in a team, or whether it be in a government, or I've even seen this happen multiple times in ministries, it can be very common for them to begin disparaging the work of their predecessors. Have you ever noticed that? It's almost like one of the missions that people engage upon when they take a new role or a new office or or a new position of leadership is to trash whoever came before them because they're trying to set themselves apart from whoever that was or maybe elevate themselves over whomever that was, and uh, they speak poorly of their immediate predecessors. I frequently see this. I've seen this in all different realms, but I frequently see this done by political leaders. I'm sure you've seen that as well, where people assume office, and then it's like mission number one, trash your predecessor. But unfortunately, I've also seen some ministry leaders through the years adopt that pattern on more than one occasion. It's not wise, but it's common to do that. And by the way, if the Lord ever raises you up to a position of leadership, let me encourage you, don't trash your predecessor, even if you disagree with uh, how they stewarded their role. And when you look at Saul, you know, you could look at his life and you could say, all right, as king of Israel, maybe in some respects, he certainly did deserve to be disparaged. I mean, there were definitely some things that he did that, I mean, it cost him the throne, his behavior, his his uh, way of going about things, the Lord took the throne away from him. So you could say maybe he deserved to be disparaged, and you'd probably have an argument to some degree. But what did David choose to do? As he takes on this role, as he's now being elevated to the position of king, you have David honoring his predecessor, and he also makes a point to honor those who honored his predecessor. So specifically, when he learned that the men of Jabesh-Gilead gave Saul a respectable burial. David spoke a blessing over them. And he asked the Lord to show his steadfast love and his faithfulness to these men who were loyal to Saul even in death. And again, you would look at this, and many, many leaders, many political leaders, many new kings would say, oh, okay, now they've shown their true loyalty. Their loyalty is to Saul. I should eradicate them. That wasn't David's mindset at all. He looked at this and he said, that's the kind of people I want on my team. That's the kind of people I respect. Look at how they treated their king. Even in his death, they made certain to give him a respectable burial. And David 
ultimately, you know, prayed God's blessing upon them. And again, that's not a common way to respond to the demise of a leader who slandered you. It's not a common way to, to respond to, um, you know, the demise of someone who, who tried to take your life. But the Holy Spirit was guiding David's temperament. And the Holy Spirit gave him the desire to honor those that had been anointed for service, including Saul. Now, just kind of think about this for a moment, just in your own heart or just in your own head. But have you ever been placed in a similar position to David, where you could have spoken ill of someone, but you chose to honor them instead? You ever been in that spot? Like, you could have done it. You could have trashed them. You could have spoken ill of them, but you chose to honor them instead. You had the opportunity to to really put them down with your words, but you followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit to to hold your tongue and and to really just keep that back. By the way, I think that that's one of the greatest evidences in a person's life of spiritual maturity. A person can get to the spot where they will hold their tongue in all kinds of contexts, including a context like that, I think that's high evidence of spiritual maturity. The Holy Spirit at work in a person's life, you often see that by what comes out of their face, right? By what comes out of their mouth. Naturally speaking, what do we desire? When someone tries to hurt you, what do you naturally desire? What do, what do you think I naturally desire when someone tries to hurt me? I think naturally we desire revenge. And again, no one would have blamed David in his generation if he sought revenge. But spiritually speaking, when you look at what Scripture teaches us, We understand that the Lord is the only one with truly innocent hands. None of us could say, oh, my hands are so innocent, right? So vengeance should always be left up to the Lord because we're not innocent. We shouldn't be the one taking vengeance on somebody else. I'll also warn you of something because I know that some of you are already serving in various forms of leadership, and some of you aspire to serve in forms of leadership, including church leadership. And I'll tell you what. And this surprised me, and I don't know that I fully was prepared for this before I I stepped into the role that the Lord called me to serve in, but this is an area where, precisely in this area, this is an area you're going to be tested probably a lot. One of the hardest things that that I found, just from my own personal uh, testimony or experience, one of the hardest things for me to adjust to when I started serving in more public roles was the amount of criticism and even sometimes slander that I received in serving in those positions. And I remember early on in the first few years of serving as a pastor, it actually shocked me. Now, stuff like this probably happened in my home church. I don't know. I just know that I really didn't see it. And, uh, and so I was like, do people really do that sort of thing? And I, I remember feeling kind of shocked, and it actually took me a long time to adjust to it But then you look at the example of people like David in a portion of Scripture like this, and I really felt like the Lord started bringing these sorts of things to my mind and showing me these sorts of examples from Scripture. You look at gracious people like David, and the Lord helped me to understand there is a much healthier way to respond. I think typically when you feel like you're attacked, the easier thing to do is to respond defensively. And I can point to certain times early in my life where that was probably my go-to response. I get very defensive. And one of the things that the Lord's been teaching me over time, He's been helping me to grow comfortable with trusting Him to handle those things for me. And you know what? It always goes better if I, if I trust Him to handle that. 
He just seems to take care of it. And I just want to encourage you, if you ever feel like the Lord is inviting you to step into a role of leadership that makes your life a little bit more public than what is average, just keep this sort of thing in the back of your mind. David didn't seek the kingship. He wasn't seeking to be king. The Lord raised him up to that. But as you can imagine, he dealt with attack after attack after attack for 40 plus years in the midst of that. And yet he rejoiced because he was doing what the Lord called him to do. And he didn't feel like he needed to get defensive when he was on the receiving end of those things. And I believe that that's something that Christ wants us to emulate in our day-to-day walk as well. And in fact, if you ever read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if you go into Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, you can see a variety of things where Jesus talks about this idea of not going through life retaliating for everything, right? Do you have anyone in your life that you see like they just retaliate for everything? Anyone have siblings that just retaliate for everything? Um, You don't have to answer that out loud. There are people in this world, they just retaliate, like always, always retaliate, whether it be verbally, physically, whatever it needs. They always feel like they have to be the one that gets the vengeance. And then you look at what Jesus said when you th- see his words in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. He says this, and he's like speaking about, you know, as you bear his name in this fallen world, prepare to be on the receiving ends of, uh, of a few arrows, a few darts. But he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Is that our instinct in moments like that? I don't think that's our instinct, is it? That's something that, if, if we're really going to practice that, that's only going to be the Holy Spirit who prompts that in your life and in my life. He teaches us to respond that way. So Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. So what's that saying? If that happens to you, you're in good company, and you're not the first, and you're not the last. And the truth is, half the time when people say stuff like that, they don't even mean what they say. You're just a convenient excuse for those words to be targeted against, oftentimes because you're one of the nicest people in their life, that they know that they could say that sort of thing, and it still won't chase you away. Not that interesting? It's a weird dilemma. But after Saul died and the people of Judah anointed David as their king, the rest of Israel at first, they made Saul's son, a man named Ishbosheth, they made him king of Israel, which seems interesting because you look at that and you say, well, now wait a second, why, why didn't they just make David king right away? Uh, but the scripture tells us Ishbosheth served uh, in that capacity for two years, even though that position was rightfully David's by prophetic decree. And we're also told that Ishbosheth was eventually murdered by two men who were captains of raiding bands. But after his death, the tribes of Israel, they sent elders to David at Hebron, and they made a covenant with him, and they anointed him to be king over a united Israel. And if you look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, that portion of Scripture tells us this. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out, or or, who, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, 
He reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, by virtue of the fact that David reigned for 40 years, by virtue of the fact that people are still talking about him to this day, you could rightfully say that David was a great man. And just think about, you know, how many, how many Davids are here with us? Raise your hand if your name's David. All right. Okay. So uh, I, I see at least a couple, right? Um, it's kind of, now, any Ishbosheths? I don't want to, okay, I didn't want to leave anyone out. All right. So no Ishbosheths, but some Davids. So it's a name that's carried on through thousands of years as one that when you name your, your son David, you're like, oh, that's a good name. That's a good, strong name. I like David. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. Dave. David. Right? You know, you look at that, and his heritage, his legacy, just one of being a great man. And people talk about him, and they think about him, but what does it mean to be truly great? Like, if you want to be a great man or a great woman, and I actually hope you do want to be someone great, but not the way the world defines that. What does it mean to be truly great? How can, be, how can we be great without becoming great in our own eyes? Do you understand the distinction between that? We're going to be great in the biblical sense of the word, the way that the Scripture talks about David being great. And I'm going to read a portion of Scripture that references that in just a minute. I'll tell you where I think it begins. You're going to be great the way Scripture talks about this. I believe the process of becoming great in a biblical sense, it begins with living in close proximity to the Lord. We're living in close proximity to the Lord. You're in position for the Lord to to lift you up to that form of greatness. Now, there are many people in this world, even some professing believers, who I think sometimes, they at least they act like they think the presence of the Lord is maybe a, a burden and not a blessing. And I think some people almost treat him like, like he's one who seeks to stifle their fun or put a wet blanket over their ambitions. That's kind of how they sometimes think of the Lord, but that's not how David saw the Lord. He wanted to live in the center of the Lord's will, and he wanted to live with a strong sense of the fact that the Lord was right there with him in the midst of every one of his joys and in the midst of every one of his struggles. And he had great joys and he had very, very deep valleys that he walked through during the course of his life. But true greatness cannot be obtained if you're trying to live your life at a distance from the Lord. You spend your life running from the Lord, you're also absconding with greatness. Biblical greatness, the way it's described in Scripture, is not found apart from the Lord. It's found by living in close proximity to the Lord. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel 5, verse 10 of David. It says, And David became greater and greater... Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. He was with him. It's right there with him. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Again, the concept of becoming great, it's spoken of multiple times in Scripture. It's not only spoken of when it comes to David and his context. I mean, you certainly see the Lord do great and mighty things in David's life, and raising him up to be a king, that's a great thing. But during Christ's earthly ministry, it seems like this whole concept of greatness was also something that fascinated his disciples. His disciples talked about it a lot. They actually thought about it a lot. 
not just in regard to other people, but in regard to themselves, they would think about it and talk about it. And they actually brought the subject up repeatedly. So could you imagine, you know, if you had the opportunity, now obviously through prayer we have the opportunity any day, any context, to have conversation and relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you were able to see him while he was on this earth in physical flesh and have a conversation with him in that kind of context, what would you ask him? Would you ask him, hey, uh, curious, how can I become great? Would you say that? I bet you you wouldn't. I don't think you would, but the disciples did. They're like, yeah, so like, we're going to be great, right? Like, this is great, you're great, we're going to be great, right? And they brought up the subject repeatedly. When you look throughout the Gospels, they seem to keep bringing this whole thing up. And I assume they were thinking a lot about it because crowds were now swarming to Jesus and murmuring was happening like, oh, you know what? This is the Messiah. This is going to be a king like David. We're going to have a king like David again. He's going to throw off the Romans. And we're not going to have to deal with their political oppression and their taxation and their occupation of our land. He's going to throw them off. Oh, we're his inner circle. He called us to hang out with them. Sweet. And they're looking at that and they're thinking, oh my goodness, my parents are going to be so proud. They are going to be so proud. They're going to think this is fantastic. And so I, I wonder if they even tried to be a little subtle about it. Like, you know, so uh, obviously, Jesus, we're, you know, destined for greatness. So, I mean, like, that's a given. So, um, like, how great will it be? You know, and where do I get to sit? And is it a better seat than John gets? And is it like, it's, it's going to be good, right? Like, do it, and what kind of authority do I get? Do we get weapons? Do we get to have weapons? And uh, they seem to think about a lot of these worldly things. And again, the crowds were swarming to Jesus. The murmuring was out there. Here's the Messiah. Here's the one that's in the lineage of David, that the Lord is going to raise up as king, the Messiah, the anointed one. Here he comes. Get ready. He's going to throw off the Romans. And the disciples seemed to believe that they were going to serve as Jesus' cabinet, his inner circle of leaders, overthrow the Roman government. They thought that was all coming. And then Jesus makes it clear that that's not the kind of kingdom he came to this earth to establish during that era. It wasn't espousing greatness in the way people of this world assume that term or that concept should be used. In fact, this is what Jesus taught. When you look at Matthew chapter 18, it says this, verses 1 through 4, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this kind of conversation is recorded multiple times in the Gospels, so I'm actually assuming they probably brought it up even more times than what's recorded. But who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus taught. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So to be great in the kingdom of heaven, think about what Christ said here. What he's inviting us to do is repent of our desire for worldly greatness and become like children. That's what, he, that's what he's encouraging us to understand and do. And here's the thing. Children accept... I mean, like, first of all, even, let, me, let me just say this. Even before... I psychoanalyze the mind of a child, which some people argue I may still have, right? I look at the children on Sunday mornings, um, you know, as we, as we dismiss 
for children's church after the third song, and then they go to their classes and, and things like that. Does it not warm your heart every time you see that swarm of people go through that door? It, it does, right? And, and we look at that and we're like, oh, that's a beautiful thing. And some people, some of you have told me, that's one of your favorite things to see on a Sunday morning, knowing that those children get the opportunity to hear the Word of God proclaimed, they're being taught scripture memorization, the gospel's explained to them. And by the way, and I wish our teachers downstairs could hear me say this, but those of you that volunteer to, to help with the children and youth here in the church, it's an extremely important thing that you volunteer your time to do. This is a foundational and, and a key season in the lives of each and every one of those young people, and you're part of their spiritual formation. I found a picture earlier this week uh, it was a newspaper clipping from, from my younger years, and it had a group of people from my home church that I looked at them and I was like, boy, that person made big spiritual investments in me. So did that one. Yeah, that one woman right there, she was huge in my spiritual formation. That pastor, he was huge in my spiritual formation. His wife, huge in my, past, in my, my spiritual formation. I look at them, I'm like, they had a lasting influence on my life. And why are adults given that kind of opportunity, and why does it seem to work in many respects that a child receives that? Well, when you look at the life of a child, especially a younger child, you do tend to get to a spot where you think you know everything, but in an earlier season, children tend to accept the fact that they don't know everything, right? They, They look at you, you're a genius. I, I, lo- I loved when my kids were in single digits and they went and got old. Thanks, kids. But I loved when they were... I was a genius when they were in single digits. Like, literally, I was a genius. And, uh, and I, I, like anything I said, they would just hang on every word. And then a few years went by and they're like, this man is stupid. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't know anything. He dresses funny. He uses strange words. No one knows what the word banister means, Dad. I'm like, banister, that's a word. What do you mean you don't know what banister means? No one calls it that. It's a railing. What? Never mind. Possibly a scarring event. But young children, you look at them, you know, and you just picture Jesus taking one of them and standing them, standing this little child in their midst. And what do they do? They accept the fact that they don't know everything. They just, that's just life when you're a child. You accept that. They walk by faith. They trust others continually to meet their needs. Every day. You know, what do children do when they wake up in the morning? They wake up in a house you paid for. Eat food you bought for them. Wear clothes that you matched for them. And clean for them. Fall asleep in cars when you're driving. As an adult, can you fall asleep in a car? Some of you can. I can't. You have better faith than I can. Feel like I'm like, yeah, I can't sleep in a car. Why? I don't trust that driver. You know, somehow my eyes are going to prevent me, them from making a, a bad decision, right? I don't know. I should just sleep. I'm a goner anyway, right? <laughs> but what do children do? They go about their daily lives with humility because they can't reach everything and they can't read everything and they can't do everything. They need someone to do it for them, and that's a kind of trust. And that's a kind of reliance that the Lord wants to see in our lives toward him. That's what he wants to see. Greatness in the kingdom of God can't be obtained apart from that kind of faith. That's truly what the Lord wants to see from you and from me, that level of trust. The other evening, our family sat down to watch some home videos that I took when our oldest children were just little. 
And the older I get, the more sentimental I get, and the more mushy I get, and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this feels like it was five minutes ago. And then you look at the people in the, the video, and you're like, I don't even recognize these people anymore. Who are these children, right? We sat down to watch these videos. Our oldest children, just little, you know, the days they were born, right after they were born. So cute to watch them learn as the video went on, right? You know, a few months later, there's a clip. A few months later, there's a clip. You see them walking, and then you see them talking, and they're learning words. There's this one portion in the video where my wife and I are teaching our our oldest daughter the names of fruits and vegetables, and she's repeating them after us. And I was like, all right, that is ridiculously cute. But they trusted us for everything they needed, and we're watching that in the video. And, uh, and I look at that and I think, all right, God wants us to trust him that way as well. Even though it can be hard for us to walk by faith when we're living in the prime of life. Maybe you feel like you're living in the prime of life right now. It feels like you're doing most things where you're operating under your own strength. And the Lord says, no, see, that's the dangerous part of this season of life. You're at the, the peak of your human strength and you're, you're forgetting to trust me. And he says, and when Jesus looked at the disciples, he's saying, look, this is what it looks like. You used to be here. Get back to this mindset. Get back to this. And he points to a child. And Jesus also explained that greatness in his kingdom, it doesn't resemble the leadership style of earthly authorities. And and I'll tell you what, and you already know this, but most people cannot handle money. Most people cannot handle power. And most people cannot handle influence. Those are things most people on this earth cannot handle. In the vast majority of contexts where those three things are obtained, they are abused almost every time. It's very rare that they're not. In fact, you don't have to look very far to find some contemporary examples of that abuse either. How many politicians have you seen just become so drunk with power the second they obtained it? And what, most, what do most of them do with that power if they're not restrained? If there is not some sort of restraining influence on that power, they go too far with it. Most often they misuse it. They become overbearing. They become domineering. They become controlling, right? They want to control every aspect of your life. Jesus even addressed that in Matthew chapter 20. When you look at verses 25 to 28, he says, But Jesus called, to, uh, but Jesus called them to him and said, and again, he's trying to help the disciples understand this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. So he's saying the culture of the church should not resemble that. He's saying it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Key word, Right? And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about controlling or dominating other people. What's it about, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 20? It's about serving. That's the mindset, right? That's exactly what Jesus chose to do for us. All creation was spoken into existence through him, and yet he humbly took the form of a servant and gave his life for us. He healed the sick. He counseled the confused. He washed the feet of his students, and he gave his life to rescue the lost. That's what scripture reveals. He's the ultimate example of greatness. 
And the pattern of selfless service that he established is the pattern that you and I should be modeling our hearts and our lives after as well. Early in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he made a comment, another comment about greatness. And he said something worth noticing about John the Baptist in particular. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. He said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You remember that statement that Jesus made in, in Luke 7? What does he mean by that? Why would he, you know, w- when you look at John the Baptist, John was a, a humble servant of the Lord. He didn't waste his time caring about the trivial things that matter to most people. He gave his time, he ultimately gave his life to proclaiming the message of repentance that the Lord had entrusted to his lips. And yet Jesus also says that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. What does he mean by that? Well, John lived and ministered before the crucifixion and before the resurrection of Jesus. There are blessings, think about this, we are a privileged people. There are blessings that you and I as believers under the new covenant, blessings that you and I get to experience that John did not taste during the course of his earthly life. We are a blessed people who have been showered with gifts that we couldn't earn and gifts that we didn't deserve. We were dead in sin, and yet Jesus made us alive in him. We were low, but he made us great in his eyes. And now with respect for him and all he has done for us, he invites us to approach the rest of our earthly lives with an eye toward humbly serving other people in his name. That's the mindset and attitude he wants you and I to adopt and convey. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. Going back to David, David was raised up to glorify God, and he was raised up to serve the people of Israel. Jesus has raised us up. He's raised us up that that we would glorify his name and that we would serve others as well. That's the heart and mindset he wants us to adopt. And here's how I think that service is going to begin. I think it's going to start in your home. And then I think it's going to continue in the church. And then very likely, I think it's going to extend beyond it. As the Lord lifts you up, never seek to be great in your own eyes. Keep singing his praises, not your own. Don't be like the audio book that spends five minutes praising itself. You're going to spend five minutes giving praise. Make sure it's heavenward. But I believe our service is going to start at home, continue in the church, and extend beyond that And the Lord's going to give us the opportunity to represent him to a world that doesn't understand what true greatness looks like. This world is convinced that greatness is all about power and control. And then you discover what Jesus says. No, it's actually about humility, putting others above your own preferences and honoring Christ and his name above our own name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and fully acknowledge that you lifted David up and you made his name great. And yet by your grace, he didn't adopt a posture of becoming great in his own eyes. 
And then, Father, we look at the words that were spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to explain to us what greatness looks like in our generation. It's not about earthly status. It's not about titles. It's not about political leadership. It's not about accolades. It's about living in close proximity with you. It's about having a teachable and humble spirit. It's about serving others instead of seeking to be served. It's about looking at the blessings that we have living in this era and being grateful, realizing that those who came before us didn't enjoy these same blessings. So, Lord, thank you for showing us these things as we look at your word together. And thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to just realize the fact that you looked at us when we were low and you said that it was your desire to lift us up. You didn't leave us in the, in the mess that we were in. You didn't leave us in a context where we had no hope or we had nothing to, to look forward to. You put us in a spot where we could recognize what you have done. You gave us the privilege to trust in you, and you've given us hope beyond our current day-to-day experience. So, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you so much, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ and for the privilege that it is to just start off our week together looking at your word and reflecting on the truth of your gospel. I thank you for the fact that you allow us to spend time serving one another and blessing one another. I thank you that that began in our homes, it extends in the church, continues beyond. I'm grateful, Lord, for every, every adult in this, in this fellowship that goes out of their way to serve the generation that comes after us. And Lord, whatever you call us to do, we pray that we would do it for your glory and that your name would be the, the name that's honored. And again, Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to bear the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we go throughout this world that we would serve as ambassadors of your Son and that we would give this world a great picture of the heart change and life change and the new life that we've received through him. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. If you're tired of parenting advice and news headlines that are more confusing than assembling IKEA furniture, we've got just the podcast for you. My dear friend Abby and I are here to help you navigate the parenting roller coaster. Should your kids be on social media? What should you tell a friend facing an unplanned pregnancy? These are just some of the many questions we tackle on our podcast. Subscribe to The Real Deal of Parenting wherever you find your podcast.